You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. We have a lot that I want us to try to cover today, and so we are going to try to go fast, but be as clear as possible, going as fast as possible. All right, so Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This chapter is oftentimes um, referred to as the millennial reign of Christ. Um, And so we're going to talk in terms of of really trying to understand what that means when this takes place and what's actually going on when it takes place. All right. We're going to look at a bunch of different, not a bunch of different views. We're going to look at the major views in regards to this chapter. Um, And my hope is for us to see the positives that those views bring to the table, whether we agree with them or not. Um, So I want to present each one in such a way where it draws to our attention something that we can do better, something that we can remember, something that that increases um, our understanding of what God's Word has to say, whether we agree with the view or not. Okay, um, and so there's going to be a lot of application, hopefully, today as we look more like a seminary class, maybe in regards to some of these views and their beliefs, but really trying to bring it all back together to an application standpoint. Okay, so from a summary sentence standpoint, seeking to understand Revelation 20 is healthy because it forces us to seek clarity through other passages of Scripture, reminds us that God does keep all of his promises encourages us that the gospel will be effective prior to Christ returning and leads us to hope in the second coming of Jesus more and more. For our kids, when the Bible is confusing, we need to study hard and know that God has great things to teach us about himself and his plan. All right, we're gonna have a bunch of notes on our slides today. 
Um, we may not stay on each slide for very long, so if you need to reference it later, you can. That's why we make them available through our bulletin. You can access it on your mobile device. Go back and reference these later. Don't panic about trying to get all the notes down. That's why we do this. That's why we make them available for you to reference at a later time. Okay? My desire is to, over the next several weeks, give you the desire to know exactly what you believe about this chapter. Right? I, I don't think it's, it's mature for us to say, that we can't know this chapter, we can't under this chap- understand this chapter, and that we're content to not know this chapter, right? Like, we need to understand all of Scripture. God has written it down for us. He's chosen to communicate these specific things to us. It's important that we seek to know this chapter, um, especially in the context of how we're studying through the book of Revelation, okay? It's healthy for us to try to understand this chapter because it forces us to seek clarity from other passages of Scripture. So if you, tr- if you really try to understand Revelation 20, it's going to force you to get into other passages of Scripture, some that maybe you don't frequently go to. Okay, So there's a healthy aspect that it drives us to Scripture. As we're driven to Scripture, we're going to be reminded that God keeps all of his promises. Right? We're going to be driven to Old Testament passages that oftentimes are used to filter this chapter through as far as an understanding goes, and we're going to have to be forced to reconcile. God said some things. When does he fulfill these things? Right? It's going to remind us that God keeps his promises. It's going to encourage us that the gospel is effective, that, that God communicated certain things through the plan of sending Jesus and then that message of Jesus being communicated to the earth, that it is effective. When we choose to communicate it, it does have effects. Right? Like, like people come to know Christ. We're going to see that. And it's going to lead us to hope in the second coming of Jesus more and more. All right? And for our kids, uh, hopefully they can continue to learn and understand that there's some passages of Scripture that are hard to understand, but that we shouldn't shy away from those passages. But instead, we should really commit to study hard and know what God has communicated and to know that as we study hard, we're going to find great things about his plan, that he wants us to know great things about himself and his plan, all right? As, as, as a way of introduction, so for some of you, you've sat through all of my eschatology teaching, right? Like I started teaching eschatology and really trying to grapple and understand what God's word has to say about the end times in 2010 when I was a youth pastor and we went on a winter retreat, okay? So we devoted a whole week really to knowing God and knowing his plans for the future. And we spent a lot of time talking, not about Revelation really, but a lot of the passages outside of Revelation that talk about the end times. So from 2010 on, we've taught through a lot of eschatology. When we planted our church, we taught through First and Second Thessalonians, which are heavy eschatology letters outside the book of Revelation, okay? In discussing Revelation 20, we're not gonna spend a whole lot of time talking about arguments for or against the rapture arguments for or against seeing Israel and the church as the same or as distinct because we've taught extensively on those things, okay? So if you want further information about the rapture, further information about Israel and the church, come see me. I can direct you to the podcast that we have in place that will help, uh, help inform you about what God's word has to say about those things. I don't wanna take up a lot of our time talking about those things again, but we will reference those as though everybody kind of has an understanding of what the Bible has to say about those things. So some of you that have joined us later after those studies may have to go back and listen to those to understand some of the context, okay? When we talk about the millennial reign, um, the, when we say the millennial reign, it means a thousand years, and we get that number a thousand years from Revelation chapter 20 in two incidences where we're told that Satan is bound for a thousand years, 
and that people come to, to life and reign with Christ for a thousand years. It's one of the most debated chapters in Scripture, part of the reason being that this is the only chapter that explicitly mentions this type of time frame in relationship to Jesus' reign. So we don't have a whole lot of other passages to go cross-reference and say, oh, this passage is also talking about this time period. We don't have that. This is the only explicit passage that deals with this topic. All right, It's a time period where Christ reigns in addition to Satan being bound during that type of reign. Okay, And there's some questions as to when this happens. Is it a future period of time when Christ reigns physically on the earth for a time prior to eternity? That's what premillennialism teaches, is that Jesus comes back, he comes back visibly, physically, and he establishes a a throne, a temple to rule on here on this earth and basically becomes the king, the president, the ruler of the entire world before we're all ushered into eternity, which means there are believers and unbelievers on the earth during that time of rule. That's what the premillennial view holds to. The amillennial view says that the entire time period between Jesus' first coming and his second coming is this time period in Revelation 20, that the millennial reign is happening now, that people are ruling and reigning with Jesus now, that Satan is bound based on the type of binding that's communicated here in Revelation 20 now, and that all the time between Jesus coming the first time and when Jesus comes back the second time is called the millennial reign. Okay, that it's not a literal thousand years, that it's symbolic for a long period of time. Postmillennialism says that it's a future period when Christ will be universally acknowledged in obedience by nations and peoples of the earth before he comes back. Okay, this is before Jesus comes back. There is a time period after he left this earth, and we may be getting into it. We may be getting into it soon. We may already be in it. But there's a time period that will elapse where basically the entire earth is Christianized. Not that everybody is a Christian and not that sin goes away completely, but that the norm is that you're a Christian and that you try to live by God's word. And that that will be not just in our nation, but in all nations. That's what the post-millennial view says, that basically the gospel works, God's people communicate it, People respond. Satan is bound in such a way where he is virtually removed from the earth, and we enjoy a time of blessedness, maybe for a thousand years, where Jesus is reigning, but not here physically on this earth, that basically he will return to a basically Christianized world. Okay? Those are some of the views that are out there, and we're going to talk more about them extensively. Two major views, premillennialism, postmillennialism. Jesus comes before the millennial reign. Jesus comes after the millennial reign. There's two subviews under each of these. Under premillennialism, we have historic premillennialism that says Jesus comes back after a seven-year tribulation. Um, dispensational, pre, uh, dispensational premillennialism says that Jesus comes back before a seven-year tribulation and then comes back again after it. Okay. Postmillennialism has two thoughts underneath it post-millennialism, and then amillennialism, the two that we've already kind of highlighted, okay? So there's four major views. Two of them are grouped as premillennialism because they believe that Jesus comes back before he rules and reigns for a thousand years. The other two are grouped under post-millennialism, meaning that he comes back after he rules for a thousand years, okay? One 
He comes back after he rules on this earth for a thousand years and Christianized the world. The other, he comes back after he's kind of ruled and reigned in heaven for a thousand years and people have come to life and ruled with him there. Okay? We're going to talk about these more extensively, but just kind of giving you an overview of what these teach. All right? Um, Premillennialists, those people that believe that Jesus comes back before he rules and reigns for a thousand years in chapter 20, they read Revelation 19 and 20 chronologically. Okay, we've already studied Revelation 19. We talked about the second coming, right? The marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus comes back to vanquish his enemies. Premillennialists see that happening, and then chapter 20 happening right after that. Okay, that right after Jesus comes back, we roll into this thousand-year reign. Postmillennialists believe these two chapters are talking about the same events, parallels in each chapter about the same things happening. Okay? Just so you kind of understand the approach that I take. I take the postmillennialist approach. I take the amillennialist approach in my understanding of Scripture. Okay? So I believe Jesus is coming back after a thousand-year reign, and I believe that thousand-year reign is happening between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, and that Satan is currently bound and that Jesus is ruling and reigning. And I'll tell you what I mean by that through Scripture today and in the coming weeks, okay? As you try to work through this, now, you don't have to be a amillennialist to be a part of our church. You don't have to be an amillennialist to worship here. You don't have to be an amillennialist to enjoy the, the fellowship and the teaching of this church, okay? This is, this is like second and third tier matters as far as theology and doctrine, okay? But you will get an amillennialist feel as we teach scripture that applies to eschatology. We've seen all of Revelation through a lens of amillennialism, okay? Everything that I've shared with you and taught with you has come through a, a filter of amillennialism, okay? But as you try to work through this, as you try to understand this, there's some interpretive challenges that you need to ask yourself these questions. What is the purpose of the 1,000-year period, and when does it occur, okay? What is the binding of Satan, and what limitations does it bring to him, and then number three, what is the first resurrection and who is actually reigning with Christ? I'm going to show you today how each of these views answers these questions, okay? What does the premillennialist say the purpose of the thousand-year period is? Why, why do we even have that? If, if Jesus is going to come back and rule and reign for eternity, why does he come back and rule and reign for a thousand years first, okay? We're going to talk about what the binding of Satan means in relationship to all of these views, and What's the first resurrection? What is that talking about? Who are the people that are reigning with Christ in chapter 20? Okay? So, again, I'm going to give you a slide that answers these three questions. Real simple for all of these views that you'll want to write down just so you can reference them later. All right? The great thing is that there's a lot of agreement in these views and a lot of great people that view these, uh, have these different views. Okay? Points of agreement. Everybody says this may or may not be a literal thousand years. Okay, that Christ is coming and resurrection will occur when he does and that Christ will bind Satan for his purposes and will defeat him completely in the end. Like at the end, we can rejoice over the fact that, that these are points of agreement. That these things will happen, okay? And as I told you before, there's great people that believe all of these views. The historic premillennialist, that post-trib Jesus comes back and then reigns for a thousand years is held by John Piper, all right? The premillennialist pre-trib view is held by John MacArthur. Um, the amillennialist view is, view is held by Sam Storms. 
The, uh, the post-millennial view is held by Doug Wilson. These are all guys that I reference for all kinds of things theologically. So we're not talking about some of these people are false teachers and others aren't. These are all great men of God that have great contributions to the local and to the universal church. Okay, so there's a lot of, lot of healthiness in thinking through these views because great men hold to these views. Okay, let's jump right in and try to work through uh, these different views and come to an understanding. Again, my desire is to increase your confidence about what chapter 20 is talking about and to give you some guidance in how to study this further on your own, all the while trying to give you some application for today. All right, the first one is premillennialism, the application point. Remember I told you when we were studying when we were doing our Matt 28 night about how to study the Bible that I've shifted over the past six months in my notes and even how I outline our sermons and I make each point an application point. Premillennialism, remember that God keeps his promises, okay? Like that's the application point. As we look at premillennialism, we are going to find that their big, big deal, their big crescendo, their big point of focus and emphasis is you have to believe this view because you have to believe that God keeps his promises, that if God says he's going to do something, he does it, okay? And so they've formulated their view based off the fact that God says some things to Israel in the Old Testament, and he hasn't done those things yet, and this is when he will do them during the thousand-year reign of Jesus, okay? Remember that God keeps his promises. That's why I told you, you don't have to be a premillennialist to gain a lot of, of benefit from looking at it. Because as you look at premillennialism, it's going to challenge you to reconcile the fact God keeps his promises. God doesn't change, right? And so if God says something in the Old Testament, you may have never read that passage before, but if he says it, he has to keep it. He has to do it. For our kids, premillennialism reminds us that God keeps his promises, all right? And just a brief note here. That dispensational premillennialism, the one that, that's the pre-rapture, that, that believes in the premillennial, pre-rapture coming of Jesus, um, it's only been around since 1825. Now, that's, not, that's not very long, okay? It hasn't been around that long in church history. It primarily came from the Schofield Study Bible, or the Schofield Reference Bible, which was developed by a lawyer um, who kind of challenge people to think about certain aspects of scripture differently, particularly in the area of eschatology. And so this view became to, began to populate and became popular through that study Bible. And then it gains immense popularity within the last several decades with the Left Behind series. Okay, so some fictional books became the driving force for a lot of what people understand and believe about eschatology in this area now. In fact, it's now like the predominant um, view amongst conservative Christians today. Like if you encounter somebody at, at work who claims to be a Christian and goes to church and has halfway ever thought about eschatology, they are going to talk like a premillennialist most likely. It's the major view that's taught in churches today, conservative Christian churches today, okay? Just to summarize both of these views so you can kind of understand a timeline and then I'm gonna give you a little timeline, okay? So that historic premillennial view, says that the present church age, that's when we live right now, that this, this time will continue and it will go through a time of great tribulation and then Jesus will come back. And then when Jesus comes back, he will live on this earth and rule over this earth for a thousand years. When he comes back, believers 
both dead believers and living believers will be resurrected to new bodies and they'll reign with him for the thousand year period. The dispensational premillennialist says present church age will continue until the time of the rapture. Jesus will come back and rescue believers before the tribulation. He'll go back to heaven with the believers. They'll be spared from the coming tribulation. At the end of the tribulation, he'll come back again, and then we'll have the millennial reign. Okay? To give you the visual picture of this. All right? And these chart and, the, and and the, these chart and so just so you know like this isn't like new belief for Adam like these charts were made 8 years ago, 2010 winter retreat. And and nothing has changed in my belief system since then. Okay? First coming of Jesus, church age, present time, endures a great tribulation, second coming of Jesus. We have that millennial reign that takes place. Then we have the unbelievers resurrected for that white throne judgment that we see at the end of chapter 20. There's judgment. Then the renewed earth happens. Then we go into eternity. Okay, so we're living in the church age. We'll go through the tribulation. Jesus will come back. Then we'll have the millennial reign. Then we go into the eternal state. That left behind view, first coming of Jesus, church age is the present time. We have that secret coming, the rapture. Believers go back with Jesus. Then there's the great tribulation for seven years. Then Jesus comes back. Then Jesus reigns over the earth for a thousand years. Then we have the judgment. Then we have the eternal state. Big difference between these two views is one believes in a rapture, one doesn't. One believes we go through the tribulation, the other doesn't. This view distinguishes Gentiles and the church more than the other view. Okay? The reason they believe in a rapture, we talked about this before, is because there's a distinct plan of God for Israel that's different than the Gentiles. Okay? All right, now, let me give you the, the, the quick summary that you can jot down. The premillennial view says that the thousand-year period is ultimately there so that God can do a lot of the Old Testament promises. There's some passages that we won't take time to look at today that I will give you to reference on your own because it's like eight chapters long that's one of the main ones. There are passages that talk about a rebuilt temple. There are passages that talk about a time period of peace where sacrifices are being offered and basically the whole world is coming under the authority of Jesus in the Old Testament. And so premillennialists say, I mean, that hasn't happened yet and it needs to happen before we go into eternity for God to really keep that promise. So they would say, we gotta have this thousand year period because it's when God fulfills his Old Testament promises. Satan is virtually removed from the earth completely. He stops roaring like a lion and roaming about seeking whom he may devour. And when Jesus comes back, there is a bodily resurrection. That's when we get new bodies and we rule and reign with Jesus with those new bodies. Okay, because I told you at the beginning, the interpretive challenges are, what's the purpose of the thousand year period? When does it occur? What's the binding of Satan? What limitations does it bring to him? And what is the first resurrection and who actually is reigning with Christ? Okay, their answers, it's for God's Old Testament promises to be fulfilled. Satan is basically gone. There is no Satan basically on the earth at that time. And that it's believers bodily resurrected to rule and reign with Jesus for a thousand years. All right, here's some of the key beliefs. And so I just want to read these to you and you just kind of listen to them. All right, key beliefs. The premillennial view is characterized by a literal interpretation of prophecies 
and the uniqueness in the relationship of the church in Israel. Okay, so premillennialists, there are two key things. We read prophecy and we interpret it literally. Okay, if God says that the lion and the lamb are going to lay down together, we should be expecting lions and lambs sleeping next to each other and not eating each other. Okay, we interpret prophecy literally and we see a uniqueness in Israel that is different from the church. Okay, that's what the premillennial view says. Church and Israel are unique, and we read prophecy literally. Jesus' return will introduce a millennial reign in bodily form for an extended period of time with him ruling over the nations from an earthly throne in Jerusalem with peace and prosperity occurring all over the earth and special privileges being bestowed to Israel. Okay, so during this time frame, premillennialists say Jesus comes back and there is a capital city in Jerusalem. And sitting on that throne in Jerusalem is Jesus. And we may live over here, but we're under the authority of Jesus. And Jesus lives in Jerusalem. And we all follow the rules of Jerusalem, the laws of Jerusalem. And for a thousand years, that takes place. And there's believers and unbelievers on the earth at that time. Okay? The church in Israel are unique, if not completely separate, peoples of God. The majority of the Jews are converted during this time period. So there's a, a huge, massive Jewish revival during this time period of a thousand years. It's primarily for the fulfillment of God's earthly promises in the Old Testament. Most believe that the sacrifice system will be reintroduced and they're done in such a way where it's a memorial to Jesus, right? Like they're not offering sacrifices for their sins. It's basically a celebration of the sacrifice of Jesus. Okay, so it, it almost takes the place of the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper is kind of our celebration about the work of Jesus. We would stop doing the Lord's Supper and we would do sacrifices again. That's the premillennial view. It holds to multiple bodily resurrections to appease their timeline. Okay, so we talk a lot about Jesus coming back and we get new bodies. Well, that's true for some of us because there's multiple bodily resurrections in the premillennial view. That... Um, Dispensational view says that the rapture, that dead believers during the church age come to life and living believers come to life. Okay, so if you believe in a rapture, you believe that when Jesus comes back, dead people that are Christians come to life and people that are alive at that time that are Christians get new bodies. But a lot of them believe that Old Testament saints do not. They have to wait a little bit longer. All right, then the second coming happens and people that died during the tribulation and then Old Testament believers get their bodies because it's meant for Jewish people and mainly people that get saved in the tribulation are Jewish people. So they get new bodies at the end of the tribulation. Then people who die in the millennium get their new bodies at the end of the millennium. And then all unbelievers get resurrected at the end of the millennium. So a lot of resurrections, not just the first resurrection, but a lot of resurrections happen in the premillennial view. See Satan's presence completely removed during this time. One of the things that you have to wrestle with if you're premillennialist is that when Jesus comes back, sin continues and death continues and God's wrath continues. All right? We'll see this as a weakness of this view because what we're saying is that Jesus will come back and for a thousand years, people are going to die, people are going to sin, and God's going to have to pour out more wrath at the end of the millennium. All right? Some key verses. These are some passages you may want to look at. The big one is Ezekiel chapter 40. 
through chapter 48. This pictures a time of the temple being rebuilt with sacrifices being offered, some of those Old Testament promises that we talked about. All right, I'm going to give you some weaknesses of the view, and then I'm going to give you the two main ones. All right, the weakness of the premillennial view. It's hard to account for who actually enters the millennial reign when Jesus comes back. Because remember, when we read last week, Jesus comes back and he, I mean, he just wipes out his enemies. And the Bible also says that when Jesus comes back, anybody that's a believer at the time is supposed to get a new body. So you're not really left with anybody to be alive on this earth to go into the millennial reign. There's not a clear answer as to who they believe will go into the millennial reign. The historic view has some non-believers surviving and then converting. So when you go back to read Revelation 19 where all the birds are gathered to eat, the historic view says not all the unbelievers died during that time. Some of them God spares, they convert, they go into the millennial reign. Which is hard to reconcile with the idea that and Scripture seems to say when Jesus comes back, all your opportunities are over, right? Like Second Peter says, he delays his return because he doesn't want any to perish but all to come to repentance, seemingly saying that when he comes back, the time of repentance has ended. But the historic view says that some of these people survive, they become Christians, and they go into the millennial reign. The dispensational view says that anybody that lives through the tribulation goes right into the millennium. They still don't get new bodies until the end of the millennium. Okay, we said that it teaches that believers receive new bodies at various times. That's a weakness because scripture seems to say that it happens all at one time. Separates the resurrection of believers and unbelievers by a thousand years. So it says that unbelievers don't get resurrected until the end of the millennium. A bunch of other people get resurrected at the beginning. But John chapter 5 verse 28 and 29 seems to say that it all happens at one time. In John chapter 5 Verse 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Reading that, you would be hard-pressed to find that a thousand years separates those two events, those being resurrected to the resurrection of life, those being resurrected to the resurrection of judgment. But in order to be a premillennialist, you have to believe that a thousand years separates those resurrections. Um, it teaches people have the opportunity to get saved after the second coming of Jesus. We said 2 Peter 3 seems to teach differently. If you go back to Revelation 15, 1, we've already studied this, obviously. But it says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Right? So when these things get poured out, the wrath of God is supposed to be done with. Revelation chapter 16, verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and with a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts. The, nation, the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away. No mountains were to be found. Great hailstones, about 100 pounds, each fell from heaven on people. They cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe, right? Like we have it being done here. We talked about this being the second coming when Jesus shakes the earth for the final time, Hebrews talks about. This is the second coming. And then in Revelation 19, which we studied the last couple of weeks, verse 19 and 20 through 21, 
I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. The beast was captured with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These were thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. Like There doesn't seem to be anybody left, and it seems to be the final outpouring of God's wrath. To be a premillennialist, you have to say, but there's still a little bit more. God still has to pour out wrath on those people at the end of a thousand years who'd reject him during that reign. Teaches a form of separation regarding the church in Israel, requires a significant gap um, in 2 Peter 3 where it talks about Jesus coming back and then the earth being renewed because we're also saying that when Jesus comes back, if you're a premillennialist, the earth doesn't get recreated until a thousand years later. All right? Teaches sin and death will continue after the second coming of Jesus. Teaches a return to the sacrificial system along with other various shadows and types of the Old Testament. The book of Hebrews basically talks a ton about how the Old Testament points to Jesus. Right? Jesus is better than everything in the Old Testament. The premillennial view says, but let's go back and do some of those Old Testament things again. Right? Like they were pretty good. Let's go back and do some of those things again. Like let's have a real temple Let's have sacrifices, whereas Hebrews seems to say, we don't need those things anymore. We are the temple, right? Jesus is the great sacrifice. Premillennial view says, let's bring back some of the things from the past, right? A little blast from the past, a little throwback. Let's bring some of these things back to play, and let's redo some of these things again for a thousand years. It basically paints a picture where we get glorified bodies, but we live in a world of sin and death for a thousand years. Seems kind of anticlimactic to what we've been reading about. When you look at Revelation chapter 20, I told you that their big thing is that this is the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. If you just read Revelation chapter 20, there's nothing there that would make you say, this is God talking to Israel. Like this is great encouragement to the Jewish people. There's no mention of that there. You have to kind of read that back in. You kind of have to force that back in because there's nothing there that feels Jewish or or pro-Israel in chapter 20 that would make you say, ah, this is where Ezekiel's talking about this happening. You have to kind of force it back in there because there's no mention of that in Revelation chapter 20. Okay, so summarizing the major weaknesses of this view, who's left to enter the millennium? Jesus coming back doesn't end wrath, sin, or death for a thousand years. But the pro to this view is that it forces us to reconcile, man, God's made some promises. How does he fulfill those promises? He's made promises How does he keep those promises? Okay, so we'll look more at that issue when we get into amillennialism, okay? But that's the main point from premillennialism is that for those of us that aren't premillennialists, the the encouragement is to us to remember that God keeps his promises. All right, number two, postmillennialism. Postmillennialism. Application, be encouraged that the gospel works. Be encouraged that the gospel works works. For our kids, postmillennialism reminds us that if we teach the gospel to others, people will get saved. This is an extremely optimistic view. Like when you think about postmillennialism, it's known as the optimistic view about eschatology. Because what it, what it initially says, or what it, what it really says is that, man, the church wins, the gospel wins, and everybody is going to either become a Christian or at least live like a Christian until Jesus comes back. Right? It's, it's extremely optimistic. 
It's extremely optimistic, and it really takes the passages that talk about the gospel and our mandate to share the gospel literally and basically says, how does this not work, right? What does Matthew 28, 18 through 20 say? It says the Great Commission says that Jesus has all authority and that all authority presence goes with us wherever we go to share the gospel. So the, the post-millennialist steps back and says, we got Jesus on our side. Jesus has all the authority. How do we not win this war? Right? So it's extremely optimistic in that it believes, basically, that the church evangelizes the entire world. I'll tell you that this view normally gains great support when things overall in the globe are moving in a positive direction. This view has been at its height in church history when there are no rumors of wars and there's great revival happening in the church. So when you talk about the great awakening in history, a lot of people were saying, ah, post-millennialists are right. We're going to win this. Hey, there hadn't been a war in a while. Things are at peace. And we're moving to a, what's really what they call a golden age of humanity where everybody's kind of living under the authority of Jesus. Now, when there's like world wars happening, you don't find a lot of post-millennialists, right? Because it's like completely contrary to what they think is going to happen. And if you stay a post-millennialist during World War II, you're basically saying we're nowhere near the thousand-year reign. And nobody wants to be nowhere near the end of, and then going into eternity. So it's more popular when things are going good. To kind of summarize it, the progress of the gospel and the growth of the church will gradually increase. More and more people become Christians. And then those Christians influence everybody to where um, it leads to a drastic social and cultural reform resulting in an age of peace and righteousness on the earth. He rules in the hearts of his people on the earth. After that reign, Christ returns. Believers and unbelievers are resurrected. The final judgment occurs, and we all go into eternity. So it basically has everything moving and trending upward till Jesus comes back. Okay? Give you that picture, that timeline. First coming of Jesus. We're in the church age. Things seem kind of bad right now, but they're going to get way better for a thousand years. It's going to be really great. Then Jesus is going to come back. He's going to judge everybody. Then we go into eternity. All right? The key beliefs of postmillennialism anticipates a golden age prior to Christ's return when the gospel will triumph on the earth, bring about conversion of the nations. Sin will still be present, but it's reduced greatly to a minimum. God's word prevails in the hearts of people, becomes the norm to be a Christian, emphasizes Christ's dominion on the earth as he subjects all things to himself. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 talks about this, right? He's going to subject everything to himself. The post-millennialist says, you got that right. He's going to subject everything to himself, and this world is going to become Christianized, okay? It anticipates amazing results from preaching the gospel as promised. So when it hears in the Old Testament that Abraham is going to have descendants like the, like the stars in the sky and the, sands, uh, the grains of sand on the seashore, it says, yeah, it's going to, and it's going to be all over the entire earth. Like the only way that that makes sense is if we really see the entire earth come to Christ. If Christ has all authority and he goes with us, how can we not win the world? The golden age will include a great salvation of Israel, which is mentioned in Romans 11. Um, Reigning with Christ through the first resurrection is fulfilled through regeneration that occurs at salvation. So they're going to say that this first resurrection is a spiritual resurrection that we call regeneration. That's when the Holy Spirit comes to us and makes us alive 
to where we respond to spiritual things and we respond to the gospel and we get saved. They would say that's the first resurrection, when you come to life and want to follow Jesus. And when the whole world is doing that, they're all experiencing that first resurrection and Jesus is ruling and reigning. All right, their key verses, Matthew 13, 33. Matthew 13, 33 says, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in the three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Kind of a picture of steady and regular growth of the kingdom. Matthew 16, 18 I tell you, you are Peter, on this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Again, that idea that we will win this with the gospel. Their summary, thousand years, is the gospel advancement before Christ returns. Why do we have this thousand year period? It's so that the gospel can be carried out the way that Jesus intended for it to be. Satan's influence is reduced greatly. He's virtually non-existent. He may still be here, but he really has zero power. Their view of the resurrection, this first resurrection, is our coming to Christ for salvation. All right? And then the weakness of this view, do we hope for the golden age or the second coming? A post-millennialist has to really guard and protect himself from wanting this thousand-year great world versus really wanting Jesus to come back, right? Because it's an ideal situation, and Jesus isn't here. But that all has to happen before Jesus comes back. So for the believer, to be a post-millennialist, man, it's really hard not to shift your focus to can't wait for the golden age to get here versus can't wait for Jesus to come back, right? We said at the end of Revelation, what's John saying? Come, Lord Jesus, come. Not come, golden age, come, right? How do we mesh the passages of suffering and deception with the golden age? Because we've read a lot in the, in the book of Revelation and in other New Testament passages that say, man, suffering is to be expected by the believer. Deception is to be expected by the, by the believer. False teachers. It's hard to mesh that with a golden age of a thousand years where that's not happening. All right? But here's the downside to postmillennialism is that when you reject it and you argue against it, you almost argue against the effectiveness of the gospel right? You're like, come on, seriously, you really think the gospel works like that? You think people really want to become Christians like, like that? And you almost start to minimize the gospel. And so that's why I said, man, post-millennialism, it needs to remind us that the gospel works, right? Like we don't need to minimize the effectiveness of the gospel. Do we believe that the entire globe is going to become a Christian? I don't. I don't. But I do think that all nations People from all tribes and tongues will be worshiping Jesus. And so I do believe that the gospel is effective. And as I look at post-millennialism, it ought to remind me that the gospel is effective and it ought to inspire me to be very gospel-minded in my relationships that the gospel does work. That Jesus does have all authority. That Jesus does go with us. And that we need to be reminded of that constantly. Okay? Lastly, amillennialism. Application, find hope in the second coming because that's what the amillennialist pushes for. It's, hey, it's all about the second coming of Jesus and when the second coming happens, it's all over with because that seems to be the thrust of the New Testament. Everything is pointing to the second coming of Jesus. We've seen some passages that really seem to emphasize and highlight that when Jesus comes back, sin stops, 
death stops, wrath is finally poured out for the last time, and that we go into eternity. So the big thrust for the amillennialist is that, man, it's all about the second coming of Jesus. It's the great blessed hope of the believer. It's what we look forward to, and when it happens, it's over with. We go into eternity. For our kids, amillennialism reminds us that our greatest hope is Jesus coming back. In regards to this position, this has been the consensus position of the largest portion of the church for the longest periods of time in history. Okay, let me say that again. This has been the major view of the big church, the universal church, for the longest periods of time in history. Okay, not the left behind view, not the post mill view. For the majority of church history, the majority of the people have been amillennialist for the longest periods of time. Now, is that the case right now? No. No, I told you, dominant view among conservative Christians today is that there's a rapture and Jesus is coming back and then he'll rule and reign for a thousand years. That has not been the consensus for the longest periods of time in church history. Summarizing again, amillennialism, it's the present church age will continue until Christ comes back. Currently, those states who have been laid to rest are reigning in a literal, vibrant kingdom that is in heaven, not on earth. So we're in the millennium right now. Our dead friends that are Christians are ruling and reigning with Jesus in heaven right now. At the end, all the events happen at one time. At Christ's return, believers and unbelievers are resurrected. Final judgment occurs, and we will all be ushered into the final state. This is the simplest view, the simplest timeline. We're in the church age. Jesus is ruling and reigning. He will come back, and we will all go into eternity. All right, the key beliefs of the amillennial view. And this is sometimes viewed as the pessimistic view, which is unfortunate because, again, it's all about Jesus coming back, but we believe things are getting worse, not better, like the post-millennialists. So it is pessimistic in the sense that we're trending downward. More false teachers are coming. Greater antichrists are coming. But it shouldn't be viewed as pessimistic because that's all part of God's plan for his glory, right? But it's sometimes viewed pessimistically. Key beliefs. There is no distinctive time period that we're waiting on for this millennium. It's happening right now. It's everything between the first and second coming of Jesus. It describes the church's growth in the present age, but is not anticipating a golden age like the postmillennialists. Things will get worse. All the optimism that the postmillennialists has should be reserved for the new heavens and the new earth, right? Like the amillennialists will say, yeah, God's going to keep all of his promises, but he's going to do it in the eternal state. He's going to do it when he recreates everything. Views the millennial reign as occurring now with Christ and his people reigning in heaven. That promise was given in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. Um, when we were reading to the letters to the churches, you'll remember that Jesus promised anybody who overcomes, even if you die as a Christian, you will come to life and reign with him. It says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. This promise that you'll go to be with me and you'll sit with me on my throne. Therefore, the amillennialist believes that the first resurrection is the coming alive with Christ spiritually in heaven. So we, we get to go be with Jesus, Paul talks about. And by being with Jesus, we have victory over the second death. When God brings judgment, we are spared because of that first resurrection, because we are saved. Okay? Um, emphasizes the binding of Satan as a state where he can no longer deceive the nations as he did in the Old Testament, and he cannot prevent the spread of the gospel. He cannot mount an attack against the church with all the world's evil nations until right before Jesus comes back. All right, let me show you this in Revelation 20 because this is the big critique of the amillennialist view. 
The amillennialist view says that Satan is bound right now, right? And everybody else that's not an amillennialist says, are you kidding me? Like Satan's running around like crazy. He's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. What's all the talk about spiritual warfare, us needing to put on the armor of God to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one? How is Satan bound if he's running around doing all these things right now? Let's look very carefully, and we'll talk more about this in the coming weeks in Revelation 20. Let's look very carefully at what it says. The angel seized the dragon, verse 2, bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit, shut it, and sealed it over him. And what was the result of that? He could not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Skip down to verse 7. What happens when he is released? What, what does he start to do then? When the thousand years are ended, Satan's released from his prison. He comes out. He deceives the nations again that are at the four corners of the earth to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Now, remember, if you're a premillennialist and you believe Jesus rules and reigns on this earth, you have to believe that people that number the sand of the sea hate him and don't want to worship him and mount an attack against him at the end of this, which is, which is really hard to reconcile, that Jesus could rule in Jerusalem for a thousand years and the bulk of the earth says, no, thank you, we reject you, okay? But Satan mounts this great attack, okay? So as an amillennialist, I would tell you Satan is absolutely bound right now. He cannot deceive the nations any longer. He cannot mount an attack against the church with all of the nations on this planet like he will one day. He is limited in those two areas. You say, well, Satan's still deceiving people. Absolutely. But it's hard for us to recognize how different the New Testament has been from the Old Testament because we didn't live in the Old Testament. But if you go back and read the Old Testament, you don't find people believing in Jesus outside of Israel, really. I mean, you could probably count on two hands the amount of people who were non-Jewish who worship Yahweh. There's just not very many. Like you have Rahab, well, she joins up with the Jewish people, right? You have um, Ruth, but she says, whoever your people are, they're my people. Whoever your God is, my God. I'm gonna go be a part of you guys. You don't have people living in other nations worshiping Yahweh like you do today, right? Like China might have Christians that outnumber the Christians in the, in the United States right now. There are an enormous amount of Christians all over the globe today. The gospel has been effective. There are people that worship Jesus from all tribes, nations, and tongues right now. That was not the case in the Old Testament. So I can tell you confidently, I believe Satan is bound in that the gospel has gone to the nations in ways that it never had before Jesus came that first time. Do I believe he still walks around and wars like a lion and seeks him be made of power? Absolutely, because this passage doesn't say that he stops doing that. This passage says that he stops deceiving the nations. It says that he can't mount a massive attack against the church until Jesus releases him. We've seen in Revelation he will do that, that this time period at the end of history the Antichrist will rise. He will deceive the nations greatly. This great apostasy that we're protected from because we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Our names are written in the book of life. We don't worship the beast. Satan is bound in that the gospel is going to the nations and he cannot attack the church globally until Jesus releases him. Okay? So I very much believe that Satan is bound because this position teaches that he's only bound in certain ways just like Revelation 20 seems to indicate. 
emphasizes the great hope of the believers, the second coming, we've already said that, sees the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies primarily in Jesus through the church age. Do I believe that God keeps his promises? Absolutely. Do I believe he always keeps them literally? No, because the New Testament seems to indicate that. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him, talking about Jesus. That is why through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Man, the New Testament indicates that a lot of what's talked about in the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus, pointing to Jesus. So we can kind of go through and work through individual promises and how does this get fulfilled in the New Testament, but if we approach it from the overall aspect that they find their fulfillment in Jesus, and there's several passages that we'll probably look at in the New Testament that show fulfillment of Old Testament promises in ways that you would not expect if the Bible didn't tell you to at least indicate to us I don't think we need to expect a rebuilt temple and sacrifices springing back up and Jesus being on a throne because those things have been fulfilled in the church age. Um, some key verses, and we'll close with this, and I'll read them to you as you're writing down the summary. A thousand years is the church age. Satan's influence is reduced greatly, but only in certain areas. The resurrection is the intermediate time between death and bodily resurrection it's when we live with jesus in spirit form we rule and reign with him let's read a couple of passages that help defend the idea that satan is bound luke chapter 20 verse 34 jesus said to them the sons of this age marry and are given to marriage but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. All right, so in this passage, Jesus is talking about the future resurrection where we come to life, but he also says, it's correct to think about believers that have died as being alive with Christ now because he says God is God of the living. People like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Well, if you're listening to this, you're like, well, those people are dead. Jesus says, no, they're alive. He's the God of the living. These people are alive with Jesus right now, which meshes with Revelation 20 saying that we come to life with Jesus when we die. Luke chapter 13 Verse 29. People will come from the east and west, from north and south, and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. Right? People are going to come, and, and people are going to be saved from everywhere. Right? That's an important aspect of the amillennialist view, that, that during this church age, God is ruling and reigning, and nations are coming to Christ. And that's where the amillennialist sees the gospel success in terms of nations versus numbers. Postmillennialist says it has to be a lot of numbers Amillennialist says it has to be a lot of nations. All right. Uh, John 12, 31 through 32. Just a couple more and we'll wrap up because I know we've we've been talking in a lot of detail. Verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This is Jesus talking about his crucifixion. And what does he say? At my crucifixion, judgment is coming. The ruler of this world will be cast out. And when I'm lifted up, the earth 
the, uh, people will be drawn to me. And so he's describing a time where Satan is seemingly cast out so that people can come to Jesus, right? And that was currently at the time Jesus was talking. Satan hasn't been cast out of this earth, right? He's still, he's still walking about like a roaring lion. But he's been severely limited in that people come from all nations to become Christians. That word for cast out, it's the same word for being thrown into a pit in Revelation 20. That's good right there, right? The same word where Jesus says Satan has been cast out currently, as I'm talking to you, disciples, he's been cast out. It's the same word used in Revelation 20 for throwing him into a pit, okay? We don't need to think literally that Satan has to end up in a pit somewhere. All of Revelation has been very symbolic, right? Same word Jesus says he's been cast out so that when I'm lifted up, people are drawn to me. He's been cast into a pit. The door's been slammed shut. He cannot deceive nations. The gospel is effective. People come to Jesus, and he cannot mount an attack against the universal church with all nations until Jesus says that he can. Matthew 12, 23 through 29, we won't take time to read it. We'll reference that later. But Matthew 12, 23 through 29, Jesus says he describes himself as one who has bound the strong man. He basically describes the gospel as being like a robber who goes in and ties up the owner of a house and makes him watch him take all of his stuff out. Jesus says, that's what I've done to Satan. I am fulfilling Revelation 3 where I said, I will create enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her, and, and, and her seed, and I'm going to rescue people back to me. Jesus says, here's what I've done. I've tied Satan up. I've bound him. I've cast him into a pit. He cannot deceive the nations any longer, and I'm making him watch me save people from every tribe and tongue, and he can't do anything about it. He can't stop the gospel. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. All right, these are all key passages that show, and you can really talk about Satan being bound if you talk about the effects of the gospel. All right, talked about the summary, the weaknesses of the view. Does it give an adequate response to the Old Testament promises that do not see a literal fulfillment? We'll talk about that in the coming weeks. Does it give an adequate response to the binding of Satan in light of spiritual warfare passages in the New Testament? I think that it does. I've already shared a little bit of it with you. We'll share more of it in the coming weeks. Application for us. We saw three points of application, right? In regards to premillennialism, be reminded that God keeps his promises. Postmillennialism, be encouraged that the gospel works. Amillennialism, find hope in the second coming. Whatever view you fall into, all three of those things apply, right? God keeps his promises no matter which view you hold to, right? The gospel works no matter which view you hold to. The second coming of Jesus is our hope no matter which view you hold to. Study this on your own and know what you believe and why you believe it. Man, my my spiritual life took off in new ways in 2010 when I stopped being scared of revelation and eschatology passages. It just took off because this is our blessed hope. This is what we're supposed to look forward to. And if we don't know what we're supposed to look forward to, we're missing out on our blessed hope. We don't don't have the encouragement that we're supposed to have. Study this on your own. Tyson was referencing this in his group. I'm going to post a link to it. There's There's a podcast, a video of three men who sit around and talk about their views on this called An Evening in Eschatology that Desiring God put out many years ago. I'm going to post it again. It's like two hours long. It's deep. It's tough to watch. You have to really wrestle through it. But when I sat down to study in 2010, I, I absolutely had nowhere, no idea where to start, right? Like I told all the kids in our youth group, we're going to study about the end times. Then I sat down to study and I was like, I don't even know where to start. I have no idea. 
I watched this video and all this started to make sense to me for the very first time in my life. I'm gonna post it, invite you to watch it, take some time to watch it in segments. It's gonna explain a lot of what I've already explained to you today in more detail. All right, I've got three books up here that I'm gonna post links to as well. For the casual reader, we've got Christ in the Future. This is a great book about the end times, has a lot of stuff about the millennial reign here. All right, this is for everybody in here. Everybody can read this. It's an easy read, all right? Step up, our intermediate reader, Amillennialism, Kim Riddlebogger, okay? I've looked at some of this. I have not read the entire thing. It's going to be a little harder to read, a little bit more in depth, okay? For our expert readers, we have this big, thick book, all right? The Amillennial Alternative by Sam Storms, all right? This has a ton of content about what we're talking about here. I told you when we started Revelation, we cannot exhaust it on a Sunday morning. There's going to be times where I encourage you to study outside of Sundays. This is one of those times I'm going to give you a podcast to watch. I'm going to give you links to books that you can look at. I brought them today so you can kind of thumb through them and see if you want to purchase any of them. I'm going to encourage you to do so. Number two, if you're a non-millennialist, do not let an attitude of pessimism reign in your life. Expect the gospel to work and seek to create a kingdom culture in your life and in your sphere of influence. We don't belittle the post-millennialist and say, the gospel can't work like that, and people will never follow Jesus like that. We need to be optimistic in our approach. We need to share the gospel faithfully. We need to call people to live according to Scripture faithfully and trust that it does work, right? That people do come under the authority of Jesus. Even if it's not over the entire globe, it will happen in every nation, and we can anticipate that and look forward to it. All right, let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for what's contained in your word. God, I know this is a hard passage to study. Father, I know I've probably been confusing at times today in trying to explain it. God, I pray that you would correct my errors and use the Holy Spirit to bring clarity where I've been unclear. God, I pray in the coming weeks we'd be able to continue to unpack this so that people can be confident in knowing what your word teaches and what it doesn't teach. God, we want to be able to come to Revelation 20 and be confident we know that, it's, that what, it, what it says. We want to be confident that we know what it means for Satan to be bound. We want to be confident that we're a part of the first resurrection because you have to be a part of the first resurrection to escape the second death, and the second death is the one that really counts. God, help us not to, to be okay with not knowing what this chapter is talking about. God, push us to know Scripture, to study Scripture. I pray that the result of our study would not be to puff up knowledge in our heads. But instead, it would, um, it would encourage us to be reminded that you keep your promises. That it would remind us that the gospel is effective. You have all authority and you go with us and you have bound Satan in certain ways where we can be effective. The gates of hell cannot prevail against us. God, I pray that our study would result in us longing for Jesus to come back more and more, that we would find our hope in the second coming. Give us clarity where we need it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.